The KSTE Farm Hour is sponsored in part by Luna by Bear, superior efficacy on the most problematic diseases. Check out the difference at lunafungicides.com. Welcome to the KSTE Farm Hour. Here's KSTE's farmer Fred, Fred Hoffman. Probe deeper into the problems at Oroville Dam, you're going to find that there were a lot of shortcuts taken during the construction over 50 years ago. A lack of thoroughness that led to last year's spillway failures and the resultant loss of land and crops downstream. We have that report. California strawberry fields are shrinking. Add to that soaring shipping costs. Is the combination too big a challenge for the state strawberry growers this year? What did the president say about NAFTA during the State of the Union address? More importantly, what didn't he say about the North America Free Trade Agreement? Gophers are getting busy now in California's fruit and nut tree orchards. We have tips on how to control their population before they gnaw away at your 2018 profits. All that, crop reports, and a lot more on this week's KSTE Farm Hour. Let's get started. An investigation into last winter's near catastrophe at Oroville Dam uncovered a litany of problems with how the dam was built and maintained, but one of them stands out. Even as the workers were building the dam, they were raising alarms about the eroded, crumbling rock on which they were directed to lay concrete for that 3,000-foot-long main flood control spillway. The Sacramento Bee says that the construction reports from the fall of 1966 showed an abundance of loose clay and very little solid rock. The surface was so crumbly, according to a state engineer overseeing the work, that a laborer at one point refused to do any more prep work until he got clearance from his boss. The contractor told the California Department of Water Resources that it needed to dig deeper to find stronger rock. But DWR limited the additional excavation work proposed by the contractor, a decision that investigators now say may have been motivated by money. Then, nearly four decades later, in 2005, Department of Resources officials took a similar stance when a coalition of environmental groups urged it to reinforce the weathered earthen hillside below another crucial component of Oroville Dam, its emergency spillway. That spillway, which was never tested, was intended to allow water to escape if the main spillway couldn't release water quickly enough in a megastorm. But the DWR dismissed out of hand the notion that the emergency spillway needed strengthening. Critics said that decision also was driven by costs. And, as you know, those warnings proved prophetic. Back on February 7th of 2017, the main spillway fractured in two, the result of being built atop a foundation riddled with erodible materials. A team of forensic investigators concluded that. Five days later, with the reservoir brimming, water poured over the emergency spillway for the first time ever. The unlined hillside quickly began washing away, triggering flood fears and an emergency evacuation of 188,000 downstream residents. And now there's a flood of lawsuits, many of which originated from Northern California's agricultural community that lost crops and property from the flooding due to the ebb and flow of the Feather River as levees collapsed as the river rose and fell. There was no real direct reference to agriculture in President Trump's State of the Union address, but he did hit on some issues involving agriculture in rural areas. For example, we will work to fix bad trade deals and negotiate good ones. The president also calling for a compromise on immigration that could affect the farm labor situation. Finally, tonight I'm calling on Congress to produce a bill that generates at least $1.5 trillion 
for the new infrastructure investment that our country so desperately needs. But to get to one and a half trillion dollars, every federal dollar should be leveraged by partnering. And in fact, a few hours before the president's speech, Agriculture Secretary Sonny Perdue met at the White House with members of the National Association of State Departments of Agriculture, telling them about the plan. We're going to look to you to help us leverage those federal dollars with state, local, private dollars to exceed the trillion dollar vision the president has about modern infrastructure. Which Perdue says is needed, particularly in rural areas. Gary Crawford for the U.S. Department of Agriculture, Washington. California's farmers were very interested to see if Donald Trump would mention in the State of the Union address anything about NAFTA, the North America Free Trade Agreement. He said this. America has also finally turned the page on decades of unfair trade deals that sacrificed our prosperity and shipped away our companies, our jobs, and our wealth. Our nation has lost its wealth, but we're getting it back so fast. The era of economic surrender is totally over. From now on, we expect trading relationships to be fair and, very importantly, reciprocal. We will work to fix bad trade deals and negotiate new ones, and they'll be good ones, but they'll be fair. That's right. The president did not even mention NAFTA. That could have been because a clear majority of Republicans in the Senate released a letter urging him to remain in the agreement. It was signed by 36 members, which represents about 70 percent of the 51-seat Republican contingent in the Senate. The letter and the speech came after a week-long round of NAFTA negotiations. The Trump administration faces a decision about what to do after the current schedule for talks end in March. Agriculture Secretary Sonny Perdue says after seeing a little bit of progress in the latest round of NAFTA negotiations, he's up beat about getting an agreement, and he's not surprised by the slow progress in the talk so far. At the White House Tuesday, Purdue telling state agricultural officials, uh, I think, again, our partners both north and south of the border are beginning to come to the table. Many of you have to deal with state legislators, and you know that when does most of the work get done? The last five days of the session. So uh, that's the way it is with trade negotiations as well, uh, that uh, we'll uh, stare off one another for a while and then come down to that. He said the president and Trade Representative Lighthizer are both very much aware of how important NAFTA has been to agricultural producers. Purdue said he's confident any new NAFTA deal will be a good deal for the American producer and for U.S. agriculture. In Washington, Gary Crawford for the U.S. Department of Agriculture. Here's this week's California crop report. Winter forage crops such as wheat, barley, and other cereal grains and forage mixes continue to be planted where ground allowed. Recent rain benefited fields that were planted earlier in the season. The fields had signs of good growth. Most winter wheat has emerged and it's growing well. Alfalfa fields are being replanted with new rains and previously planted alfalfa is growing well. Pruning and brush shredding continues in stone fruit orchards and vineyards. Herbicides and dormant sprays were applied as conditions permitted. Persimmon harvest is ongoing. Some older, poorly producing orchards and vineyards were removed and prepped for replanting. Naval orange harvest is ongoing. Naval orange worm sanitation is ongoing as well. Pomelos were harvested. Olive growers continued to prune the groves. Pruning continues in the nut orchards. Some older orchards were pushed out and the ground was prepped for planting. Some almonds were given a final shake to drop mummies that the mild winter didn't remove. Early almond blooms were reported in the Paso Robles area. 
Fields were being prepared and planted with winter vegetable crops, but activities have been slowed due to wet soils. Lettuce continues to benefit from the recent damp weather, and growth looks ideal. Strawberries are growing well. The fall carrots were a week away from harvest. Spring carrots had emerged, and they're looking well. Beds continue to be prepared for tomatoes. Garlic stands were established and growing well. Weed control was complete on organic onions, while conventional onions continue to be irrigated. Rangeland and non-irrigated pasture were reported to be primarily in fair to poor condition. Recent rainfall was beneficial, but more precipitation is needed for germination and growth of rangeland forage. Supplemental feeding of livestock is ongoing. Sheep are grazing on idle cropland, stubble fields, and dormant alfalfa fields. Beehives continue to be placed in almond orchards in preparation for the upcoming bloom season. Take the KSTE Farm Hour with you wherever you go. It's available at KSTE.com or the iHeartRadio app in streaming mode, or you can download it from your favorite third-party podcast aggregator such as iTunes. California Strawberry Commission reports that acreage for 2018 continues a trend of growth in production on decreasing planted acreage as the last few years have seen a 6% increase in volume but on a 13% decrease in land. Most of the acreage is shifting to higher yielding varieties. According to the Produce News, University of California varieties represent 59% of the state strawberry acreage while proprietary varieties represent 38%. Last year, California fresh strawberry exports were 11% of the state's fresh crop and 9% of frozen production. Early projections from the commission are that volumes for 2018 will equal or surpass last year. Acreage is estimated to be a little over 33,000. 11.8% of that is organic. The county hardest hit by a loss in strawberry acreage is Orange County. They've seen almost a 50% decrease since last year, with Oxnard falling 15% and the Santa Maria area 3%. The reality for California growers is that most big shippers are relying more on Mexico so they can offer a year-round supply to their customers. And with so many challenges in California, including a lack of land, water, and labor, plus regulations about fumigation, it's not as easy as it once was for a grower to be successful. The biggest problem now is freight charges. No one saw these prices coming. $10,000 for a load of strawberries to go to the East Coast. The cost of selling berries now is causing a burden on the farm, which is hurting the farmer. This week is the two-thirds point in the western winter snowpack accumulation season. And USDA meteorologist Brad Rippey says based on current measurements in the western mountain chains... Snowpack and runoff prospects are rather abysmal at this point. And barring a late-season miracle, we are going to be facing some extremely low runoff potential for pretty much everything stretching from Oregon and California eastward to Colorado and New Mexico. With the only real bright spots in terms of snowpack accumulations found in the northern tier of the west. Looking pretty good right now are Montana and Wyoming, and to a lesser degree Washington and Idaho, with the best snowpack in the northern and eastern parts of those two states. And with the La Nina weather pattern expected to persist between now through the end of the snowpack season April 1st, Rippey says drought and water supply issues could return to much of the region later this spring and summer. I'm Rod Bain reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. The Department of Water Resources announced a statewide increase in water allocations for their customers. Going forward, the vast majority of state water project contractors will receive 20% of their requests. That's up from the initial December allocation 
reduction of 15% to SWP contractors. Statewide allocations are based on conservative assumptions and may change depending on rain and snow received in the winter. The holidays are over and normal life is returning. But there's one more thing you should do if you haven't already done it. Respond to the Census of Agriculture now. That was Ag Secretary Sonny Perdue in a public service announcement on USDA's website. I'm asking you to do your part for American agriculture. Help us show the nation the value and importance of agriculture. Well, our goal with the Census of Agriculture is to reach out to every farmer and rancher in the United States and as complete a coverage as we can. That was Joe Parsons, the chair of USDA's Agricultural Statistics Board, who is encouraging respondents to fill out their questionnaires online. We've enhanced our web data collection form, or our web questionnaire, on the Internet, and so we'll have a secure portal that folks can come to, and they can have their census questionnaire out on the web because uh, after they answer a few screening questions, They'll only get the questions after that that would relate to them. In other words... If they only have corn and soybeans, they won't be asked about cattle or sheep or goats or shellfish or all of the things that represent the diversity of U.S. agriculture. We'd like to look at it as presenting an opportunity for farmers to respond to the census so that they can be heard. And it's really their opportunity to allow not only the farming community, but uh, all the citizens of the U.S. uh, gets a snapshot of what's going on in agriculture. That was Barbara Rader, the director of the Census and Survey Division of USDA's National Ag Statistics Service. She describes what sort of ag operations are covered. The farm definition is not just a NAS definition, it's a USDA definition. And how we currently define a farm, or for the Census of Agriculture, uh, is any place that's produced or sold, um, or would have normally sold $1,000 or more in agricultural products during the census year, which in this case is 2017. Filling out the forms online is not only secure and more convenient for an ag producer, the results also are much easier for USDA to process. The ag census occurs only once every five years. The deadline for ag producers to return their questionnaires is February 5th. For more information, go to www.agcensus.usda.gov. This is Stephanie Ho for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. There's good news for the Sacramento Valley processing tomato industry. More tomatoes may be produced on California's farms this year. The report says processors plan to contract with farmers to grow 12 million tons of tomatoes for use in sauce, ketchup, and other products. That would be up 4% from last year's contract volumes. Processing tomato acreage had dropped to low levels a year ago as processors sought to balance supply and demand. More meat will be available to Americans than ever before, according to projections from the U.S. Department of Agriculture. Analysts say total supplies of beef, pork, lamb, chicken, and turkey will reach nearly 223 pounds per person. That's the highest figure on record. The forecast doesn't predict meat prices. It expects beef production to rise 6%, pork up 5%, and chicken up 2%. Ah, yes, the build-up to Super Bowl 52 is on, and of course the event has some differences from your run-of-the-mill football game. First, it's a huge social event all across the country. And a lot of people throw Super Bowl parties. In fact, well over 43 million of us are going to throw a Super Bowl party. That's Marianne Gravely, food safety expert with the U.S. Department of Agriculture, so you see where this is going, don't you? Just like the last 51 Super Bowls, thousands of us are going to get sick after it, not because of who wins or loses, but because of a Super Bowl party food-related illness. Why? Well, she says there's another unique feature of the Super Bowl. For one thing, it's long. Yeah, there's all the pregame stuff before the 6.30 or so Eastern Time kickoff. Plus... 
There's the long halftime show with Justin Timberlake. So we get to the problem. Perishable food items like wings and dips and all of those kinds of things are going to be set out for serving for a long time. Now in football, the area from the opponent's 20 to the goal line is called the red zone. But in food terms, we have what Marianne calls the danger zone. It's the temperature zone. Anything in the area of room temperature up to about 140 degrees. The temperature at which any bacteria that's on or in that food will thrive and multiply to levels that could make people sick. So if you'd like to avoid that, keep hot foods hot, cold foods cold, and also don't leave foods sitting out at room temperature for more than a couple of hours. Now that's what you might call... Illegal procedure. Uh, yeah, right. And there are ways to keep things safe without too much trouble, and here we go with them. Use small dishes. Don't put all your chicken wings out at once. Just put smaller portions out so that when people finish eating them, you can go get a new portion and put it out. If you're serving hot foods, you can keep them hot in the oven. They want to stay above 140 degrees. Or use a slow cooker on low or a good chafing dish to keep those foods hot. And on the other side... Cold food should stay in the refrigerator. So again, if you're serving dips or cold foods, don't put it all out at once. Just put a small portion out. When it's gone, you can put another portion out. Or at least keep that stuff on ice the whole time. Next. Why, you ask, would perfectly good food have bacteria in the first place? And the answer from your food defensive coordinator. Bacteria are everywhere. They're on our hands. They're on our breath. They're in the air. You know, you've got a lot of people handling all that food. So it's quite possible that there could be bacteria present on it now just from sitting out and being handled. And also a lot of those foods are so-called finger foods, but maybe it would be better if fingers were not used to pick up those foods from the serving dishes. So have utensils available for people to serve themselves so that they're not tempted to use their hands. Because that would be illegal use of hands. Or in the food biz, fingers to the face. So enjoy your Super Bowl party. Try to keep you and your guests from getting sick because of it. Which would not be a good party memory. No, it wouldn't. Gary Crawford for the U.S. Department of Agriculture, Washington. Pocket gophers. They're common in most of California's nut production areas. In the absence of cover crops or weeds, gophers will gnaw on tree roots, trunks, and the hungry vertebrate pests can even girdle and kill older trees. Trees with root damage and girdling will lose production, as well as increasing the susceptibility to crown gall. Gophers are active year-round, and during the winter months before they begin to reproduce, mounds will be present to help identify active tunnel systems and populations will be lower. And we're talking gopher control with an expert from the University of California, coming up. Pocket gophers can be serious pests particularly in young fruit tree and nut orchards. While herbaceous cover crops are their preferred food, pocket gophers will also feed on the bark of tree crowns and roots. And when those cover crops or weeds dry up, gophers' bark consumption may become extensive enough to girdle and kill young trees or even reduce the vigor of older trees. It's been estimated that gopher damage to nut crops in California can be as much as a 6% loss of revenue. How do you control gophers? And more so, how do you not control gophers? We're talking with Roger Baldwin. He's a wildlife specialist with the Department of Wildlife, Fish, and Conservation Biology at UC Davis. And Roger, there have been all sorts of attempts to control gophers by many means over the years. And I guess uh, maybe we should start off with what doesn't work when it comes to controlling gophers. Oh, Good question. Um, there are a variety of different um, strategies that have been considered over the years, and as you would, um, as you have alluded to, some 
work relatively well, some not so well. Some of the ones that um, don't work very well, uh, for example, probably the, the question I get most often when I'm out giving extension presentations is uh, whether or not the use of bubble gum and burrow systems will work uh, for reducing gopher populations. Uh, strange as that, that may seem, uh, somebody apparently had indicated that that works uh, many decades ago, and, and it actually has been tested in a couple of different situations, and, and I can assure you that bubblegum has never tested um, as an effective approach for, for managing pocket gophers. Uh, there's lots of uh, repellents that are marketed for gophers, and at this point in time, we have not seen any uh, positive um, uh, feedback from the use of repellents uh, for keeping uh, gophers out of particularly um, large areas, but even smaller areas uh, to that extent. Um, sometimes exclusion is considered for use to keep gophers out of, out of areas, whether it be um, fencing buried underground or even wire baskets around newly planted trees. Um, wire baskets can reduce um, damage to root systems, but it's just not typically um, going to be a cost-effective or practical approach over an orchard-type system. It's something that would only be used um, in and around um, homes and, and some of those kinds of areas where you're just planting a few trees. Another approach that's discussed quite a bit is the use of cow uh, boxes and, and other predators to control uh, rodent populations. It's something that continues to be looked at. At this point in time, we're uncertain as to how effective that approach is. It does appear that if gopher populations are fairly substantial, that uh, the use of owls and, and other predators probably are not going to be enough to reduce gopher populations in a particular area, uh, in large part due to um, the uh, reproductive output of a lot of rodent species, such as gophers. Uh, we're hopeful that maybe in some situations where gopher populations are already relatively low, that there could be some benefit uh, from from owls um, uh, through the use of owl boxes to keep those populations at relatively low levels. But we're still not certain on that. We're continuing uh, to look along those lines. I imagine that when you were talking about repellents, that would include uh, gas cartridges, smoke bombs, uh, devices that make sounds or vibrations or electromagnetic devices. So for repellents, we're generally considering uh, chemical repellents. So these would be things that you would, might potentially spray on the ground with the hopes of, of um, pushing buffers out of certain areas, and those have not historically tested very effective. The other thing that we would be considering in that category would be uh, the vibrating stakes and things along those lines that you see um, sold at certain stores. Those have also not tested all that well. Um, as far as the gas cartridges and, and some of the other um, devices for which you're introducing a toxic gas into, into the burrow system, those are considered fumigants, and they're a different category um, that we can talk about if you want. Talk a little bit about the burrow itself. How extensive are a, is a gopher burrow system? How far does it run? It varies quite a bit. Uh, they can uh, be pretty extensive systems. The, probably the the, the bigger question is, is you know, how are these systems set up and how do they change over time? Because they can run um, many feet, maybe up to 120 feet in, in one particular direction sometimes, although that's, you know, certainly on the extreme end. Realistically, what you generally have are uh, several different layers of tunnel systems. You kind of have an upper layer 
which is usually within six to ten inches of the surface of the soil. And those are the um, more short-term tunnel systems where they're digging around looking for food sources. Uh, then they usually have some deeper tunnel systems which are a little more permanent. Uh, they're certainly there for a longer period of time, might be connected to some nesting chambers um, and, and other associated structures like that. The thing about gophers is they're constantly creating new tunnels, and so when they're done with old parts of their systems, they'll backfill those tunnel systems up and continue to dig new tunnel systems. So they're constantly digging throughout the landscape, moving around. Now, I know that flood irrigation may or may not work, but what about a really wet winter? Now, I think that would be a double-edged sword. Yeah, they might be flooded out temporarily, but the accompanying new green growth above may spur them on to increase their populations quickly. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And, you know, it's never been able to, we've never been able to officially test, you know, what kind of true impact that has. But generally speaking, we know that flood irrigation is uh, a fairly decent tool for managing gophers because it generally forces them up to the surface or they drown. And when they're forced up to the surface, then they're susceptible to uh, some of the natural predators that are out there because they don't have avoidance strategies to get away from that. And so when you have these heavy rainfall events, you're going to get a lot of flooding in a lot of these fields. And of course, many fields were completely flooded. And so that likely um, eliminated gophers from that particular field. If you have fields that are, are partially flooded, part of it, then probably that forces, you know, it, it probably gets rid of some of those gophers and forces the rest onto some of those other outlying areas. And so, yeah, it may do some of the work uh, for the farmer or grower in a particular area by lowering populations in those areas. But of course, once that water recedes, now you've got um, soil moisture uh, that um, is, is really beneficial for, for weeds and, and, and crops in, in these different cropping systems. And so now you have an abundance of food, plus you have lower um, gopher densities from that flood event, which means there's less pressure on those food sources. So they'll have larger litters, and those litters will survive at a greater rate. And so you could get a real proliferation of gophers after that event. And so it's, it's a real give-and-take situation there, I think. We talked about how they can damage uh, tree crops, the fruit trees, the nut trees. They can also, gophers can gnaw on plastic irrigation lines, and and those uh, tunnels, of course, can allow irrigation water to just bypass roots and go on down the tunnel. Is there an effective control for protecting a drip irrigation system from gophers? Yeah, you're exactly right. There's been a real um, desire to move to subsurface strip irrigation, a lot of different cropping systems, because it uses less water. And, of course, we're really concerned about water usage here in California. But the problem is that if gophers are present in an area, the subsurface strip is put in at about the same depth that the gopher tunnel systems occur at. And so as the gophers dig around, they come across these these drip tapes, and then they start chewing on them. And, and those leaks are really difficult and costly to repair. Unfortunately, the, the answer is no. We don't have any great strategies for mitigating uh, that damage right now. We've looked at um, repellents. Uh, potentially being forced through those systems to try to deter um, gophers from, you know, hanging out in the certain areas and chewing on that drip tape, and that hasn't proven effective yet. Um, perhaps there will eventually be a repellent developed that, that might work. Uh, we've looked at, um, uh, you know, trying to keep gophers out of certain areas with exclusion fencing. That hasn't worked as well. Currently, about the only strategy is just to, to stay on top of the gopher populations and remove them so that they don't 
build up to levels where they're causing damage to the drip tape. But, you know, with drip tape, it's it's almost a zero-tolerance policy. Even a few gophers can cause quite a bit of damage out there. And so it becomes costly to try to remove those gophers to keep the drip tape functional. Do they tend to damage half-inch irrigation lines and micro-sprinklers less? Yeah, so those structures that are above ground are not typically damaged um, much by gophers. They are damaged, of course, by a lot of other rodent species, such as ground squirrels, mice, and voles. But gophers spend the vast majority of their life below ground, and so they generally do not come above ground and chew on those structures. Talking with Roger Baldwin, wildlife specialist with the Department of Wildlife, Fish, and Conservation Biology with UC Davis. We are attempting to control gophers today out in the orchard. So, Roger, let's talk about some effective controls for managing that gopher population, which can reach as high as 30 to 40 per acre. I would I would think that uh, you have to go back to the traps. Yeah, there's a variety of different strategies um, can work for gopher control. Uh, those include um, the use of trapping. Uh, there's a variety of different traps out there, and in fact, a previous colleague of mine wrote a book on on the different traps that have been patented um, over the last um, 100 plus years, and it's probably an, an inch thick. So there's certainly a large number of traps that have been developed and, and tried over the years. One of the traps that uh, we've tested that probably has worked um, the best for us is a trap called the gophinator trap. It's worked really well. Um, it's a good size um, uh, to fit into the tunnel system. Uh, some of the traps are a little larger. This one's a little bit smaller, and so it's easier to fit into the tunnel system uh, and seems to catch gophers at, at, at a very high rate, particularly larger gophers, um, which are responsible for a lot of reproduction out there. So we certainly want to uh, eliminate those larger gophers uh, from the population if we want to have effective control. And you know, based on a lot of the research that we've done over the years, trapping certainly um, is very effective. We've seen uh, 90-plus percent removal rates after um, two trapping periods through a particular field. And in some cases, uh, after three trapping periods, we've been able to completely remove gophers from fields, and that's with densities of 30 to 40 gophers uh, per acre. So trapping certainly is a very effective tool uh, for getting rid of, of gophers um, from fields. Now, the, the big question then is, is it cost-effective? Uh, the short answer is, I think in many cases, uh, yes, it, it definitely is, but it does depend on, on soil types. Those soil types that are more conducive for easier digging, um, particularly those with shallower tunnel systems, those that have more sandy or loamy-type soils, um, trapping is a very cost-effective strategy, as cost-effective or more cost-effective than most of the other um, techniques we've looked at. If you're dealing with heavy clay soils, though, um, particularly once those soils start to dry out, then it becomes more difficult to, to probe, find those tunnel systems, and dig down and set traps. And so in those systems, it's probably not as cost-effective as other strategies. But regardless, trapping probably should be a tool that that's anybody who's interested in, in gopher control should be considering as part of an integrated approach. Now, you mentioned the gophernator, uh, pincer-type traps, and that uh, is probably well-known, along with the Maccabee and the cinch mm-hmm. uh, traps. But... Uh, the Maccabees had a problem over the years of uh, larger gophers sort of dragging the, the trap but down further down the burrow and you never catch it. Well, one of what we think the, the problems with the, um, with the Maccabee trap is 
is kind of how it captures the gopher. It kind of has an upward thrusting motion. And it, it, in so doing, the larger gophers, we think it's kind of pushing sort of out of the trap, and it catches them a little bit, but not completely, and then they're able to eventually pull free from the trap. Uh, the gophinator trap has a different capturing mechanism, which we think holds them in there um, to a greater rate. But regardless of the trap that you use, you really do have to stake the traps down, because um, if you don't, they can back up a little bit into that tunnel system and then you will lose the the trap in that capacity so staking traps down is certainly an important strategy regardless of of the trap that you're using so that handy grower that has a lot of maccabee traps around uh, probably could modify those uh, maccabee traps uh, with a cable yeah so we did do a, a research project here a couple years back where we looked at um, adding uh, a tether-type cable around the jaws of the trap. Uh, the general purpose of this is um, because we think the gopher is, is able to pull, the larger gophers are able to pull out of those traps, uh, by adding that tether to that trap, it keeps them from being able to pull out of the trap. And so we did see an added benefit of including that to um, some of the standard Maccabees. Now, there's a caveat to that in that um, if you're dealing with smaller juvenile gophers, uh, and you'll know that you're dealing with them when when you have tunnel systems that are smaller, if the trap won't completely slide down into that tunnel system without scraping the sides of that tunnel system, then it's probably a juvenile gopher. And for those juvenile gophers, uh, it was actually better to use the traps without that tether. The tether kind of got in the way of the jaws of those traps when you were dealing with those smaller tunnel systems. So we would carry a combination of some of the Maccabees with the cable on it and some of the Maccabees without it. And we'd use the ones without the cable on those smaller tunnel systems and use the ones with the, the cable on it for those larger tunnel systems, and that seemed to work pretty well. Now, there is a fairly new trap out on the market. I don't think it's been uh, subject to any uh, UC trials, but it's called the gopher hawk, and from what I understand, uh, there are a lot of farmers and growers who are very happy with it. Yeah, so you're, you're exactly right. There is a newer trap called the gopher hawk. Um, it has not, to, to my knowledge, been tested yet, so I don't have any real potential feedback on it from that perspective. What I can tell you is that... Um, uh, the trap design is as such to where when you find a tunnel system, uh, you use part of the trap uh, to poke a hole into that tunnel system, and then you insert the trap uh, directly into that tunnel system so that it's vertical, sticking up. And um, when it's activated, there's a certain color, and then when it's triggered, I think uh, uh, a yellow part of the trap shows up. So you can basically walk around and scan your traps from a distance and be able to tell if they're activated or not. And they're theoretically supposed to be a little bit quicker to set because all you have to do is poke a hole and then slide the trap down into it. Uh, So, you know, if if they work, there, I think, is some potential advantages to them. They just haven't been tested, and uh, so we're not really quite certain how they stack up to some of the pincher-style traps yet. How effective are some baits, such as the acute toxicants that are on the market or anticoagulants, or for that matter, something like aluminum phosphide or carbon monoxide? Are, are they effective in controlling gophers? So the short answer is is it depends on, on the um, product that we're talking about. But uh, uh, certainly baiting or the use of uh, rodenticides can be an effective tool for gopher control, depending upon the material you use, and same thing for the borough fumigants. Uh, those are the other two strategies that probably work the best. For baiting or the use of, of rodenticides, uh, the strychnine products have definitely 
uh, been the products that have tested most efficacious over the years. And we've had a lot of success uh, in some of our trials with uh, using strychnine. Uh, the, the biggest thing about strychnine is that uh, gophers can develop a resistance to the product if repeatedly used over many years. Um, so that's an important caveat. It really needs to be used as just one part of an integrated approach. So some combination of strychnine plus trapping plus burrow fumigation and rotating through that will maintain the efficacy of strychnine long term. Um, the other products, zinc phosphide and then some of the first generation anticoagulants such as diphosphonone or chlorophosphonone, have not tested as well for gophers for control. Efficacy is a little bit spotty and in many cases is, is really quite low. Uh, so, you know, strychnine seems to be a good strategy. The other tools are much more hit or miss when it comes to the use of rodenticides. Uh, Burrow fumigants, aluminum phosphide is the other technique that is highly efficacious. So trapping strychnine and burrow fumigation with aluminum phosphide are definitely the most efficacious strategies. The biggest thing with aluminum phosphide is that you do have to have high soil moisture, relatively high soil moisture for it to work. Uh, so now when we have that high soil moisture, you know, it, it, it can be effective once soils dry out. It no longer works very well. It's also a, a um, highly restricted product, so there are limitations on where it can be used. So certainly you would want to check the label and, and contact your county ag commissioner to find out exactly uh, where it's appropriate for use. Now, we also have the use of pressurized exhaust machines um, for injecting carbon monoxide into the borough systems, and they've been testing moderately well for, for pocket gophers. I would say on average about 65% efficacy, so I think they can be a, a strategy uh, that can work moving forward, and they don't have some of the same limitations uh, in some situations as far as, as when and where they can be used like aluminum phosphide does, so it might be a little bit more multi-purpose from that perspective. But certainly they do still work far better when you have higher soil moisture. Uh, so, you know, all of those, I think, can be um, decent strategies depending upon what your local situations are. I would think, too, that be it baits or traps, don't waste your time uh, putting that bait or a trap down an old gopher mound. Look for the, the fresh mounds to indicate current activity. You're absolutely right. Regardless of the tool that you use, you always want to find the freshest mounting activity because that is going to be associated with a, a location where the gopher is still present at. If you find old bounds, the gopher may or may not still be in that part of the tunnel system. And if it's pretty old, the odds are pretty high that they actually are not in that part of the tunnel system anymore. So I'm always looking for that freshest mounting activity is, is the best strategy for getting whatever treatment um, approach you want to use to, to remove that gopher. Is there anything you wanted to add to this? The one thing that I would mention when it comes to gopher control is that uh, uh, you should consider utilizing an integrated approach. Um, that means incorporating multiple strategies. And there are a variety of different um, ways that, that this can be constructed. Uh, one example is, is you know using habitat modification. Uh, there are certain plants that gophers prefer, and those plants are usually either nitrogen-fixing plants or plants with large fleshy taproots. And so if you have cover crops planted that have clovers and, and um, various legumes, or maybe you have uh, lots of nuts edge um, in and around some of these different cropping systems, you know, those are preferred food sources for gophers. And so eliminating some of those preferred food sources can lower carrying capacity, and, and that can lower the amount of effort it takes to, to um, uh, uh, manage pocket gophers for 
populations in that area. And then following that up with um, effective removal strategies such as trapping, um, borough fumigation with aluminum phosphide or potentially carbon monoxide uh, producing machines, and then even uh, strychnine baiting. You know, some combination of those strategies, usually uh, in some kind of a rotation, will give you longer-term efficacy and higher levels of efficacy. And when it comes to managing um, these gopher populations, what you really want to try to do is get those populations down to a very low level and then maintain them at a low level. Don't allow those populations to build back up and knock them down again, because that's going to be more costly long-term. If you can maintain them at those low populations throughout the year, that's going to be much more effective and more cost-effective for you as well. Is there a happy medium for those growers who want to use a cover crop but still want to battle gophers? Is it a matter of timing as far as removal of the cover crop? Cover crops are out there for a reason, and so it's always a balancing act between the potential benefits that a grower might get from cover crops versus uh, the potential um, harm you might see from increased rodent populations, whether that be gophers, voles, or, or some other uh, rodent species. And so, you know, each individual grower is really going to have to weigh the potential benefits they get from, from uh, these cover crops versus the potential harm. Uh, that those rodents might cause. And I think it's a grower-by-grower situation. Um, Just, you know, they're going to have to consider what kind of damage they're seeing from from rodents in that area and and then make their um, choices accordingly. Because in certain areas, you know, rodent populations don't cause as as much damage. Maybe that just aren't as conducive for rodents in that area. In other situations, rodents are continually a problem long-term, and in which case then they're going to have to think a little bit more about the construct of, of their cover crops. A lot of tools for gopher control, and it pays to use many of them. Roger Baldwin, wildlife specialist with the Department of Wildlife, Fish, and Conservation Biology out at UC Davis. Thanks for a few minutes of your time today. Absolutely. Happy to help out. Thanks for listening to the KSTE Farm Hour. Heard every Sunday from noon until 1 p.m. Pacific time and available anytime as a podcast. Download it at KSTE.com.